Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Our clients are not guilty of what they've been accused of. So Trevor Manuel was accused of being corrupt and nepotistic in the appointment of um, Edward Kisvetter as the SARS commissioner. Derek Hanukom was accused of being an apartheid spy by Jacob Zuma. All of this was on Twitter, by the way. And then Tandeka and Anton were accused of being STRATCOM agents by the EFF. Uh, In all of those cases, we have been able to achieve for our clients a remedy whereby the court says, I'm declaring this to be false. This is Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I'm Dario Milo, partner at Weber Wenzel. Today, we're going to be looking at defamation and disinformation and the overlap between the two. And I've had the great privilege of being involved in many defamation cases over the years. And very recently, we've developed a new model for handling defamation cases to address disinformation which we'll discuss later on in this episode. Here to help me discuss the topic I have on the show today, William Bird, who is the director of Media Monitoring Africa, an organization that doesn't just monitor the media, but implements successful media strategies for change and that has been involved in some very interesting media litigation over the year and has also done some interesting work in the field of disinformation. By way of full disclosure, I should say that William and I and Media Monitoring Group and and Weber Wenzel have a long association. We've had some wonderful successes, and we will perhaps discuss a few of them during the course of the the podcast. So welcome, William, and thank you for coming. Thank you. It's great to be here on this uh, first series. William, I wanted to discuss, uh, first and foremost, the overlap between defamation and disinformation. Perhaps by way of introduction, I can explain three recent cases that we've been involved in where we've tried out a new model for defamation, uh, where we act for the claimant. It's the first unusual thing for me. Typically, we act for the defendant, the media defending the case. Um, But in these three cases, Trevor Manuel, Derek Hanukom, and then Tandeka Kubule, Mbeki, and Anton Harbour, um, what we've done is we've uh, identified disinformation. They've said that this is disinformation. We'll talk about what that means. And we've used the courts to try and get a remedy which informs the public, first and foremost, that these claimants, our clients, are not guilty of what they've been accused of. So Trevor Manuel was accused of being corrupt and nepotistic in the appointment of um, Edward Kisvetter as the SARS commissioner. Derek Hanukom was accused of being an apartheid spy by Jacob Zuma. All of this was on Twitter, by the way. And then Tandeka and Anton were accused of being STRATCOM agents by the EFF. Uh, In all of those cases, we have been able to achieve for our clients a remedy whereby the court says, I'm declaring this to be false. It's not true. Um, I'm ordering that there be a retraction and an apology. Um, I'm ordering that there be an interdict to stop this from being said again by by the particular defendants or respondents. Um, They must be deleted off their social media platforms. And then also there is some discussion on damages and each of the cases has has had a different approach to to damages. And what I was hoping, William, that you could educate us on is whether you see these cases as disinformation cases. Are they 
cases that, um, as we would believe, address disinformation on social media. If I think back to our current uh, Minister of Police, Becky Ele, that he in fact had an, a live defamation case against the Sowetan when he was um, <clears throat> Commissioner of Police some many years ago. And if I recall correctly, it took about four years for that to get through. Whereas the cases you've talked about, what strikes me about them as a, as a non-legal person is that these have been dealt with very quickly. So maybe the thing that, so what have you done that's so novel that makes this, these cases being heard so successfully, especially on social media? Would be my question to you before I answer your question to me. Yes, it's an excellent question because it's, it's one of the areas that has been the subject of, of some discussion in legal circles, certainly. And indeed, I should mention that the EFF is appealing the manual case. It will be heard by the Supreme Court of Appeal sometime in 2020. Um, and Zuma is seeking to appeal, hasn't yet got permission, but is seeking to appeal the Derek Hanukkah case. So certainly more will be said about it. But for me, the novelty of the model is two things. One is paper. In other words, instead of having a long drawn out trial where you have a witness like Oscar Pistorius, which the public will be familiar with, that kind of model where a witness gets into the witness box, gives evidence, is cross-examined, is re-examined. There's another witness coming the next day. And it goes on forever. Um, and, and of course, I should add to that, there are backlogs in our judicial system mm. so that trials only actually reach court at the earliest, in, in, uh, certainly in, in uh, Johannesburg and Pretoria, a year or more after you issue your summons, your defamation proceedings. So the first thing is paper. In other words, affidavits, which are the evidence. So Trevor Manuel in an affidavit says, this is what they say about me. This is who I am. This is why it's false. EFF in their responding affidavits say, this is what we actually meant to say about you, um, this is why it's true, etc. And the court decides on paper, on affidavit, all that means is that there are no actual, uh, I call them live witnesses, doesn't mean you ever have witnesses who are, you know, exhumed from the dead, but um, they decide based on affidavit evidence and you have counsel arguing the case. So it's a much shorter proceeding. It's a a proceeding that gets to court much quicker, and the actual length of the proceedings um, is never, uh, except in the most complex of applications, the same as a complex defamation trial. So it's quicker, it's cheaper, um, it's uh, contained in the form that the evidence is something that you can genuinely get down on paper. And that's, I think, been the secret to these models is it's quite swift in trying to get the case before court. And I mean, thinking to uh, appearing in the constitutional court, like there you're dealing with issues almost by definition that are the most important and, you know, that, that concern a great deal of issues and things. And yet those are almost always heard in a day or less than very frequently. You know, exactly. sometimes on very rare occasions, they Two go days. over a day, but, but very, 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 very rarely. And so if, if you can deal with a, a matter as, as weighty as a constitutional matter in less than a day, Sure as bananas, these things should be dealt with. Exactly. So I, I really like that about that approach. Yeah. So, And I guess the, th- the other thing that's so important about it is that you're dealing with this information, which we understand to be deliberately spreading false information with intent to harm. Either and Whether the intent item isn't necessarily there, but certainly um, to cause harm, you know, I think is, 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 a, is a clear element of all of the three examples you've cited. So... Mm-hmm. It's not just that these people are out there to defame. It's that they're out there to 
spread and get people to think otherwise about a particular version and have a very different narrative that jars fundamentally with reality mm-hmm. of that person or of what they stand for or of and of particular issues. So disinformation comes in that particular context where it's linked to a live issue. So it's not like they just went out on a Thursday afternoon randomly and said, agents, you know, uh, uh, Anton and Tandeka are Stratcom agents. This was part of a strategy that was in place at the time around saying very particular things. And if you put it in the context of Winnie um, Madikizela Mandela's uh, passing, then you can yes. see why they were going on that yes. particular trajectory to, to reframe history. So the all element of being able to deal with it at speed yes. is critical because, yes. you know, you tell a lie, you need it to get... And, yes. and, and then I guess the key thing becomes the form of redress, sure. which is where, uh, you know, like the press council system or the BCCSA system has got a clear advantage currently because defamation, I know that a lot of people say, oh, we'll get millions. And if, mm-hmm. I don't think as far as I'm aware that's ever happened. No. On remedy, well, you're absolutely right. I think for me, and maybe because I generally act for the other side in defamation cases, for the media seeking to show that what they've published is true, I always tell people who want to sue for defamation or corporates who want to sue for defamation, so you've got to be interested in the principle of vindicating your, your name, of, of saying, is there a way I can persuade the public that I'm not guilty of this because mm. I'm not guilty of it if you've been falsely accused? And it does bring me to an issue I wanted to raise, William, which is, you know, these cases have been possible generally because, um, you know, the claimants involved are high profile. They have uh, access to legal resources. We're able to, as Weber Wenzel, sometimes take on cases on a pro bono or contingency fee basis, as William knows, mm-hmm. from Media Monitoring Africa. But what about those who are not quite as powerful, but who are the victims of disinformation for whatever reason, um, and who can't then access lawyers on this basis. Is there a remedy for them that you can um, think of or talk about? So what we're looking at doing, and it's something we piloted in the lead up to South Africa's national elections in 2019, we worked with the IEC to say, we need to deal with complaints about disinformation in a way that is in line with our justice system. That is that it's open, it's accountable, and it's transparent. And also bring in some of the best elements from the self-regulatory mechanisms, which are that they're cheap and they're fast. Um, because if you can get those things, then the some of the most egregious elements you can deal with. Because I guess we're not interested in, necess- in vengeance per se. We're interested in, in justice and in justice seem to be done and hopefully some kind of concept of restorative justice. So at the moment, we set up a, a mechanism called Real 411, which is for younger people, you'll understand that it means uh, the real information. For older people like me and Dario, perhaps it's a bit of a stretch to gather what that means. But essentially, it means that if you see or something on social media that you believe to be disinformation, you can lodge a complaint on the site. It then gets reviewed by three experts and they may make a finding. In the elections, uh, three experts reviewed it and were sent to the Directorate of Electoral Offences and the IEC commissioners then took a decision on what to do about that. And what that does is it starts to say that as a member of the public, and you don't have that resource to power, that access to power that, that some of us are lucky enough to have, it means that you do have a mechanism for redress. And it also means that there's a way that you can do something about this. Because I think one of the most disheartening things about digital and social media and the power that these entities have is that frequently we see them as being run by megalithic 
entities that you have no possible influence over. And so this is a mechanism that says we need to do something that speaks to ordinary people, actually. And and I suppose a large component of that is the trust of uh, users so that they know that this is a credible mechanism. So who sits on the appeal body that you're speaking about? And of course, MMA with its credible track record on um, disinformation, uh, addressing disinformation, not on disinformation, but addressing disinformation (laughs) and um, taking on these issues head on is an important component. You you need to know that you can trust the body that is doing this proactively. So the way that we're setting it up at the moment is to have different experts. So they're experts that are experts in technology, experts in media, and then legal experts who have hopefully an idea of both of those. And so some of those are very prominent people, including, say, names like Dario Milo, for example, (laughs) who are one of the people that have agreed to be there and, and we're speaking to you know legal firms to allow their people to do that because it's it's a very brief process to assess those things and then if it gets um, assessed then by uh, the, the the team and they determine for example that it's disinformation uh, depending on what action is taken we then have an appeals uh, process and that appeal we're delighted to have um, former constitutional court justice um, Zakia Koub heading that up so that if there is something that goes awry, we can take it to that appeal process. And this is quite a significant step away from the way things currently operate, which is that if you complain about Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, whatever, goes into a system that has no reference to South African law at all, doesn't get determined in South Africa, you don't know Mm -hmm. who it gets determined on what basis largely, Mm -hmm. and there's no appeal process for any of those Mm -hmm. things. So there's Mm -hmm. no transparency, there's no accountability, and and critically, there's there's also no real speed to those things unless it's the most egregious of examples. So, and so is it, is it correct that even if even if you have no answer, let's say you are someone who complains about something on Facebook, um, which is disinformation about you, um, you have no answer at all from Facebook because they, you know, as as I've often experienced in the case of these media giants, mm. benefit from US law immunity, and so yes. you know they do have a, an interest in, of course policing their platform, but it's got to be pretty egregious for them to act. You would re- at least know that at the end of this process, there will be someone like Zaki Yacoub who will say that was disinformation. And um, as it were, that enters the public domain and public discourse about the whole issue hopefully changes. Yeah, exactly. So the principle is that we wanted to then make sure that those judgments or well, those, those assessments or rulings to begin with are there and that people can look at them and see what the, what the issues are. Also because the problem is we don't really have any idea of the scale of the problem or how often these things occur. And as you talk about journalists and, and their importance, you know, a lot of them used to report frequently to, to the various platforms and then mo- many of them have stopped because mm. frequently there are reports of going to a vacuum and they wouldn't hear anything or they would be mm. told, well, it doesn't quite meet our threshold. If he said, Correct. we will rape you and kill you, then maybe we would have taken it off. But because he only said, well, we'll rape you or you should be raped, well, you know, that doesn't really yes. contravene our, our principles. So yes. this way, this is a way of, of, of saying this is, you know, we're trying to build a democracy, here, folks, and we yes. need to try and get some level where you protect vigorously freedom of expression, but at the same time you acknowledge the, the, the limits that are there and that we do it in a way that is in line with when you do limit freedom of expression, that yes. it's proportionate, it's fair, and it's reasonable, and the, the, you know, the best means possible to achieving your end. Tell us a bit about your election experience. Was it very well used? Did, did you learn any 
So the elections were an interesting thing because we managed to build it and launch it uh, with, uh, I think, uh, five weeks just before the elections were due to take place, which wasn't a lot of time. And then we tried to promote it. So we had uh, 99 complaints um, by the time the elections came around and there was a spike just before uh, voting day. Um, and so that, we think, is, is, is really successful, given that mm. we'd never tried it before and no one knew about it. You know, even though the IEC were fully on board mm. and they'd spoken to the political parties, to really start to communicate these things, you need a lot of time to get people to be aware of them and to start to have a bit of faith in them. So I think we've learned a lot. We've got a much better system on the back end that allows us to assess complaints more comprehensively, the way in which we assess these things. We've also expanded it. So it's not just disinformation, it's now incitement. It's also hate speech and it's attacks on journalists uh, online. So the thing about hate speech is curious because that's not an area that we want to try and have uh, power over. And in fact, the the people that are responsible for dealing with hate speech complaints are the South African Human Rights Commission, who mm-hmm. are also on board with this process. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing for them is, is that if we get a complaint about hate speech, it'll come get dealt with. And we'll either say, look, this clearly doesn't satisfy the grounds and kick it out. Or we say, look, we're not sure about this, and then it'll go directly to the Human Rights Commission, yes. and they can then put it into their legal process and complaint yes. system. So we're helping them, and then they're obviously helping us out. So it's something that I hope will we'll start to build up an ecosystem, because I think yes. part of this is that dealing with this information, you know, you can't just have one remedy. But it also means that if someone submits something to us that is clearly disinformation and potentially uh, defamation and all other things, we can then refer it to the lawyers because they're involved and say, listen, do you think these people, or they might say, we want to take action. And then we can say, well, go and speak to them because it satisfies this. So it should hopefully help a lot of people along the way. And and of course, the, the swiftness of the process will be critical. So the ability, as you mentioned, in, in relation to the defamation cases that, um, that we've been involved in, it's about trying to get to that result or to get through the process as quickly as possible without compromising the fairness of the process and making sure that all available information is there for the adjudicator. So we're going to have a whole series of teams of these people. And the moment a complaint is lodged, we get an alert and then we'll email all of the people or message them. I forget which platform exactly now. But And then they will see it and they can go and claim that complaint. And it'll take them 20 minutes to half an hour maximum mm-hmm. to assess it, mm-hmm. which means that ideally we're going to have a turnaround time of, of less than two hours on any complaint, which means that in the real world where these things start to gain traction, we should be able to nip them in the bud if they're particularly serious. Because if, for example, you get one like the ones that you actually took to court, yeah. within two hours we could say this is disinformation. And, by the way, if you want to get your lawyers involved, now's the time, give them a call kind of thing. Right. So people can then look at it and determine that, and then they can act. So it should make it a lot faster and easier for those processes. I mean, this is a very exciting development, and it, 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 it's, I think, a world first as well. William, and you, you've certainly um, looked into that, and I think you can claim that title. Well, we'd like to be able to do that. So yes, it seems to be based on the research that we've done, uh, which is cool, because if I look at our... And, and this is an area you know only too much about, which is uh, you know, around our media law, is 
we're a very we're a brand new country in in, yeah. in almost every respect. Certainly legally, you know, like we've only had twenty six, twenty seven years sure. of of jurisprudence as a democratic country to develop stuff. And you look at the kind of advances that we've made around media law, and you know, yeah. so. We get a lot of things wrong in our country, and we know this. It's a disaster in many respects. But when we do things that are different, we can, we have that freedom still to do things that no one else has done anywhere else in the world. You know, they haven't done it in the UK, in the States. We, we're ahead of that curve. And if you look at uh, one, uh, one of our other classic judgments, the News 24, and um, and I've just forgotten the ruling now. That was heard in the Supreme Court of Appeal around access to courts and open justice and the media having access. Yeah, the Van Bredaar case. Yes, yeah. the Van Bredaar case. Yeah. You know, like broadcasting. There, yes, thanks to you know our interventions there, it was uh, we were able to set global precedent as an as a small country on the bottom of an enormous continent, and that's pretty special. It's always incredible for me, and I mean, I'm reading in the news that the Court of Appeal in England is currently doing a pilot where some of their appeals might be broadcast. Wow. And, you know, they're treading very carefully because there are people who say, well, this is going to compromise the argument and so on. We, of course, now routinely broadcast criminal trials. We broadcast civil trials. Uh, we broadcast applications, appeals, judgments. And, and you're quite right, William. Certainly my practice as a lawyer, and I think many lawyers feel this way, certainly those involved in the public law space, that is it's a great privilege to be in South Africa because we have an incredible jurisprudence that has developed since our democracy and um, and we really are, are all the better for it. I mean, last last topic really is legal regulation. I mean, you've spoken about an excellent mechanism to try and practically deal with this information. There's a lot of debate about whether there should be more legal regulation. We've got defamation, we've got hate speech laws. Um, is there a case, do you think, for some sort of legal regulation that will deal with particularly digital speech and disinformation. So the short answer is generally no. You know, I think that we should mm -hmm. avoid that stuff like the plague mm -hmm. just because we see routinely wherever the state seeks to get involved, you know, they're by definition almost, you know, they want to push those boundaries way too fast. If you look at the laws that have been passed in Singapore, in uh, Malaysia and in some of the other countries, there's a third one that also recently introduced uh, laws dealing with this, you know, they 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 are excessive and gratuitous, and they leave the power to dis determine things in the in the hands of a minister in many instances. Mm. Which is in South Africa, you know, we'd we'd be at constitutional court before you could say is this is this a bad idea or not. So Correct. it's a generally it's incredibly hard to deal with. But of course, what we also know is is that dealing with um, you know cyber crimes and and ills that occur in digital space is something that. People are struggling with around the world, um, and in South Africa, we're lagging well, well behind in that regard. You know, Papua isn't yet fully implemented. So cybercrimes law hasn't, you know, isn't uh, come before Parliament again for for uh, support from the National Assembly for passing by the National Assembly. So there's a number of things that we've got to do before we can even start to deal with it. But it's also the very nature of disinformation and social media is such that the power dynamics no longer lie with the state. So we can't leave this mm -hmm. to <clears throat> the right. state to solve. All of these modern problems are things that require a multidisciplinary approach. Correct. And thinking that you're going to solve it by passing a law is only going to introduce pain and trauma of a level that's, you know, that's I mean, a that's disaster. Right. I mean, that's always been my approach as well, is that, you know, the legal response, say, in a defamation case or a hate speech case is really a very small part of the puzzle in, mm. in dealing with disinformation. 
And it, it does worry me, and, and, and it's one of the issues that the um, panel of legal experts convened by Lord Newberg and Amal Clooney is looking at is, you know, there are a number of fake news laws around the world, um, as William was mentioning, you know, ostensibly designed to police false mm. news, but actually often used to punish critics and to punish yeah. satirists and journalists, and in fact, on a criminal basis, um, arresting, detaining, prosecuting. So we've got to be quite careful about that. And on, on the other hand, we can't leave it only to the marketplace of ideas because, yep. you know, I've got you a quote from John Milton in 1644 who said, let truth and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worst in a free and open encounter. Uh, unfortunately, you can't simply rely on the truth emerging in this, in this um, noisy um, vuvuzela democracy that we have and that, and that others have. And, and some form of non-legal intervention is clearly necessary. But William, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great experience for us and a great privilege to have you here. Uh, thank you very much for coming and spending your time with us. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I've been your host, Dario Milo. I'll be guiding you through this first season of five podcasts on media law. Our executive producer is Paula Yoens. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by volume. Until next time, publish responsibly. Listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.